You're listening to K-Squid, Santa Cruz 90.7 FM. Many voices, community radio. This is Story Behind the Story. I'm your host, Clara Shirley Appel, and my guest today is the science fiction and fantasy author Ruthanna Emrys. Her debut novel, Winter Tide, was a 2018 Locus Award finalist and a 2017 Romantic Times Reader's Choice Award nominee. It was also shortlisted for the 2018 Crawford Award. Emrys is a self-described optimist with a soft spot for first contact stories, so it should come as no surprise that her latest novel, A Half-Built Garden, is a story about what it takes to get humans and non-humans to listen to each other. Without further ado, Ruthanna Emrys, welcome to Story Behind the Story. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. (sighs) So I first heard about A Half-Built Garden almost a year ago when the title made a brief appearance in an essay by Ada Palmer on the nature and origins of hope punk, which she describes as a subgenre built on resistance and speculative optimism. I'm curious if you see yourself in your work in that label, and if so, what it means to you. I'm really fond of the hope punk label, and I do think it applies to uh, Half-Built Garden. A lot of hope punk is um, very much about having hope in hard times and uh, resistance to very difficult situations. And while there's some of that in here, I was thinking of it a little as a second generation hope punk, not in the sense that, you know, five years on from the label being created, uh, hope punk is in its second generation, but in the sense that the characters are descendants of the people who did that initial envisioning and creative revolution Mm. to make a better world. And it's about Le Guin's idea that in order to keep a good world once you've got it, you need constant vigilance, constant further work, and there's always the risk of you know, tumbling back into the bad times and almost the historic inevitability. And so in part, it's about what hope means when you have something worth holding on to and something, some dramatic crisis happens to put it at risk. And it's also, it's hope punk in the sense that envisioning that better world right now in where we are is itself an act of, you know, hope and trying to give something to aim for. Hmm. Absolutely. I think it's really interesting that you describe your sort of description of this as second generation hope punk, in part because in in A Half-Built Garden, the first generation is still alive. And in fact, the, the main character, Judy Wallach-Stevens, she ends up engaging quite literally with that previous generation in in her, her parents and her, her sort of immediate family. And I think also like the differences between what's required to set things in motion and what's required to keep them there. Yes. And just thinking also about generational differences in activism, in the work Mm. of changing the world. And, you know, that's something we see now too. I love my family very much. And anytime I'm getting together with my dad and my sister, there's likely to be intergenerational arguments about, you know, the things that he did in the 60s and the things that we're trying to do now, the ways the language has changed, the ways that the strategies have changed. And 
for Judy, it's in some ways even more dramatic because they have they have different fights. The her parents had to make the land in which yeah. to use the metaphor and the title of the garden could be planted and she's been doing the work of maintaining the garden yeah and, you know trying to make it better but it was a garden by the time she got it yeah absolutely and i think also the ways that um over time having started to build this this sort of new this new world um it it changes the dynamic between the different the different factions that are involved so I, I saw you say in another interview that first contact stories are your favorite subgenre of science fiction. And I wanted to ask what it is about encounters with aliens that appeals to you and what kinds of first contact stories have influenced the way that, that you write about it. Yeah, it's changed over the course of my life because as a kid, I felt like I just didn't get my own species. And I thought that maybe if aliens came along, I would turn out to fit with them better than I did with humans. Hmm. And as I've sort of learned to get along with and appreciate humans, I've gotten interested in that process of getting along with and getting to know and learning to understand people. And first contact is the extreme of the challenges that you could put there. And I'm interested in what's involved in the learning to understand. I'm interested in what sort of relationships grow across that difference. So as a kid, I, as I remember A.C. Kristen's Starbridge books, I loved Star Trek, um, I loved anything where people are meeting aliens and the aliens are great and we have so much to learn from them. Um, and as an adult, I uh, enjoy more complex first contact depictions. I uh, love Mary Dariah Russell's The Sparrow, for example, mm. which has very well-meaning efforts at first contact that have both positive and in some places extremely negative consequences and really uses that to get into the dangers as well as the rewards of that sort of difficult communication. Yeah, I think your description of some of the things that got you into first contact to sort of to begin with when you were younger reminded me of a line from from Contact by Carl Sagan. Uh, it's a conversation between some of the people who are sort of going up to uh, going up as potential candidates to to meet the aliens. And um, one of them is relaying a conversation with uh, about, uh, I think, a monk. And he says, I asked him if he could communicate with a stone. Could he speak with the dead? And he said the dead were easy. His difficulties were with the living. <laughs> yes, that sounds about right. I think it's interesting kind of going back to it, what's interesting to me is uh, your sort of description of that evolution of being interested particularly in these messy stories, right? Like places where things don't happen cleanly and and where the tension isn't necessarily in some big invasion or in some, you know, epic action, but it's it's rather in these sort of nitty-gritty misunderstandings, the kinds of things that we have as people as well. Yes, invasions are, you, you can get that with humans, and sometimes you can still get the interesting 
cultural conflicts, even in the invasion stories. But fundamentally, I'm more interested in the conversations than the battles. Uh, one of the things I had in mind when I was writing this book was I was thinking about the degree to which first contact is or should be a novel of manners, um, mm. something where you have these different sets of assumptions about the world coming together and coming into conflict and having to have a lot of negotiation to get through those those disagreements and competing goals. And so it, it's a it's science fiction novel, but it's also kind of secretly uh, not exactly Regency novel of manners. And so there are a lot of fraught dinner parties and there are a lot of places where cultural norms come into conflict and cultural assumptions come into conflict and people have to figure out what it is that they're assuming and what, if anything, to do about it. I'm struck by what you said about um, the sort of interest in conversation being fundamental because a lot of A Half-Built Garden, a lot of the way it's structured is really like a dialectic between humans and aliens, for sure, and between different factions of humans, but also, I think, between different value systems and, and conceptions of things like responsibility and gender and power. Mm -hmm. uh, there's just this negotiation that's always going on in terms of what morality is and what it means. It's never fixed. And it struck me, especially after, I mean... I think it was probably clear enough from the novel, but especially after I looked it up and confirmed that you're Jewish, that it is a very Talmudic way of structuring um, it, a book. It, that is, everything I write is very Jewish, and in this one I decided to just admit it and have <laughs> a bunch of Jewish characters. So yeah, yes, there's definitely a Talmudic component to it, and that's the way I see a lot of genre conversations and a lot of literary conversations as if you've ever seen a page of the Talmud, you have central text in the middle and you have one person's opinion and another person's opinion and then next opinions around that. And it ends up being this hypertext. And while this isn't hypertext in the literal sense, it is very much, you know, trying to play with these disagreements, many of which are disagreements that I have with myself because two Jews, three opinions, uh, <laughs> one Jew, enough opinions to make an extremely argumentative novel out of. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think it's especially, some of that is especially clear in the discussion of gender and the way that the human factions differ not only from the ringers and their understanding of gender, but also from one another. Can can you talk about the way that you present gender in this and, and the sort of value of that discussion to you? Gender is one of the big topics of science fictional conversation over the uh, last several generations of science fiction writing, and it's a conversation that very much interests me. Uh, I also, you know, I, I live in a large queer collective household. We have a lot of these conversations around the dinner table, and I'm always interested when I see norms around that sort of thing changing in society mm. and thinking about the alternatives that we haven't done and that aren't even part of the conversation. 
So the culture of the watersheds, Judy's culture, is pretty directly descended from a lot of progressive ways of handling gender. Right now, uh, they often use pronoun pins. Uh, gender is very much a thing that you define for yourself and doesn't come with a lot of associated expectations around behavior or dress. If you're having mm -hmm. a really proper party, then you put out a nice little basket of pronoun pins uh, for people to uh, pick from just so no one inadvertently has any uh, gaffes. But there are other ways that beyond the quote unquote, not really traditional bi-gendered way of looking at things that is the, the conservative answer to this type of progressivism. And so if you go back to the 70s, you find people depicting societies that don't acknowledge gender at all or societies that acknowledge it but make it a less central part of the way people see each other. And there are all these different directions that we could go just from what we as humans have considered already. So I just wanted to throw out some other possibilities and have some conflict that is not the miserably annoying one that we have to face every day in the modern era. Yeah, and I mean, I think I found it in trying to describe to some of my friends, like, what are the differences between these systems, right? Like, I, I think I described the, the watershed system similarly to how you did. But then you have Asterion, which is this uh, corporate faction or representative of a corporate faction. And for them, gender is entirely about presentation. And it's not so much tied to identity as it is tied to sort of these yeah, power games. Yeah, in fact, I would say have. that if you have a true gender, that is something that should be very private because it would give people power over you. They, they have sort of the, the true names are yeah. magic attitude. And so you can present however you want. And in fact, you're expected to change your presentation Ideally, at least every day. And, you know, more often if you're really good at playing these social games that they like. And the idea of going around with just this thing that is part of your true self presented on your chest is horrifying to them. Yeah. And it was interesting to me, too, to think about to try to to try to imagine your process in thinking about this right like you're designing these these sort of different subcultures within a, a humanity set about 60 years from now and thinking about okay if your value system is based around this sort of ecological responsibility and activism what does that do for your conception of things like gender if your value system is based around corporate <laughs> dynamics and, you know, this, this sort of face that people are, you know, this, this sort of idea of a face that people are presenting to the world. What does that do to your conception of gender? If you are from an alien species that is sort of building things anew from a very different background, what does your gender system look like then? And how does that change, not just for the sort of, at the sort of systemic level, but also among individuals who come into contact with these other, with these other systems? 
Yeah, one of the things I tried very hard to do was to depict people in every culture who were not comfortable with the norms of their culture and of their culture's way of defining them. And a lot of that is that I've seen just among friends of mine that there are people who feel it absolutely necessary to make sure that everyone knows, you know, how they present, what what their right. name is, what their gender is. And there are people who really don't like to do that, who find it very uncomfortable to have to claim a set of pronouns. You know, it's, it's competing access needs, and there yeah. will always be competing access needs and competing needs for what makes people feel comfortable in their own skin and their own social presentation. And I don't think there's any good way to get entirely away from mismatches and from discomforts. At the same time, I feel we can do a lot better than we have now. Yeah, uh, I, I think to some extent that is also a very a very Jewish conception that really, there's no way around conflict that it's it's going to be part of the fabric of our lives no matter what. And the conflict is part of what makes that fabric be yeah. a living dynamic thing. It's, it's it's what makes the garden. On that note, as a as a largely secular Jewish woman myself, I was surprised by how much the Jewishness of this book um, affected me, and so much of that I realized is in the specificity of your portrayal. You talked earlier about the sort of uh, Regency book of manners. um, (laughs) And uh, I think for me, right, it wasn't just that there was a Seder in the book. It's that the Seder so resembles the Seders that I've been to and particularly that I've had with my family. The way we bring non-Jews to the Seder table, the way that that turns a Seder into a dialogue instead of a lecture or just a sort of strict passing down of tradition, and the way that that forces us to then question our most sacred beliefs and our most deeply held assumptions, and to engage with them more deeply because of that. How do you think being Jewish has influenced your writing? Uh, Like you said, the specificity is a lot of it. So the the Seder in the book is uh, descendant, uh, you know, what what is it going to look like in 80 years version of the Seder (laughs) that I run every single year with my large interfaith family. We haven't had any aliens over yet, but uh, (laughs) if aliens show up and they are hungry, we will invite them to come and eat. The Jewish value of tikkun alum, of repairing the world, is extremely important to me. And at the center of my practice, uh, I go to a a new, uh, got created about three, four years ago, synagogue that is building itself around those values and does a lot of discussion of how do we live these, how do we place them into our prayer and our practice and our education and that constant examining and the adding things to the Seder, whether it's the orange or the acorn or the olive, Mm -hmm. is important to me to have these rituals that have things that have been around for thousands of years and also have things that we just created to better reflect the values that we're continuing to try and improve. In in that sort of spirit, right, of, of um, that sort of con- continual learning, continual improvement, and thinking of writing that way as sort of a dialogue with yourself and your own values, what have you learned about yourself and your relationship to Judaism through writing this book? 
Oh, that's an interesting question. I've definitely learned how important it is to me to think about the generational continuity and change. A lot of what I was doing science fictionally in this book was trying to imagine a very personal future in the sense that some of the characters in it, even if I don't know which ones, are maybe my great-grandchildren, that it takes place in my area of Maryland. There are things that have been built there that we have talked about in town meetings, building. So having to imagine, you know, if my children take these practices that I have given them and build on them themselves and they pass them on to their children and they pass them on to theirs, what does that look like? What what does it mean that Judaism in 2083 will be shaped by but not identical to my Judaism, which is shaped by but not identical to the Judaism of my great-grandparents. Join KSQD the second Sunday each month for Intersections, hosted by Seth Shapiro. Intersections takes you to the crossroads of ideas, mapping the contours of belief and knowledge through the stories and lives of influential voices. Meet notable people in diverse fields who are asking important questions. Their experiences and perspectives challenge us to pursue lives of meaning and purpose. Tune in to Intersections Sunday evening at 6, KSQD 90.7 FM and KSQD.org. KSQD, many voices, one station. If you're just joining me, my guest today is author Ruthanna Emrys, whose latest novel, A Half-Built Garden, tells the story of humans and aliens meeting for the first time at the edge of ecological disaster. This is a good time to have you read something from the book. Um, Before you do, can you set it up for us? Let us know what we're going to hear. Sure. So uh, I'm going to read a little bit from uh, chapter two, because I know that when you're reading from a first contact novel, people want the aliens. So (laughs) what has happened to this point is that uh, Judy is up late, uh, both trying to get a baby to fall asleep and on call for uh, sensors in the Potomac. And the sensor goes off and says there's some sort of weird organics getting released and since she's actually up she goes to answer it she takes her wife and her kid along with her in the hopes that it'll help uh dory fall asleep which it does Mm -hmm. and she goes out to this island in the middle of the potomac and there's an alien spaceship there (laughs) and uh at this point they've been uh calling people in through the uh, network that is the way that things are governed and the ecology is supported in the area. Uh, they have figured out that the aliens who are sending out radio signals of bits from human films and broadcasts that are about first contact that is positive and that this is possibly aliens way of saying that they are uh, here to be friendly and they're trying to figure out uh, what to do next and how to actually do something more than listen to the signals and how they could signal back. All right. I bounced on my toes, jiggling Dory and shaking out my nervous excitement. I watched the network traffic as people arranged to bring in a radio transmitter, more sensors, a better sample kit than the one I'd packed for basic nutrient protocols. 
I tried to think of something to do in the meantime. Do you think they can see us? I asked. I tried to imagine how we'd look to an observer who'd never met humans before. Two hairless primates standing side by side, one carrying an infant. Would they notice that Carol was taller and broader across the shoulders or that my eyes were brown or hers were hazel? Would they even be able to separate us from our tools? Understand that my denim and Carol's cotton dress were clothes rather than skin, that Dory's infant curls were part of her while the smart male mesh helmeting our adult scalps came off at night? You don't even know if they have eyes, said Carol. She hugged me, and I realized that I was shivering in the clear winter night. Her touch brought the world beyond the palace back into focus. The bare-limbed maples and papulas, the dry, whispering grass, the splash of the Potomac against the cliffs. Dory, head resting heavy and warm against my chest. I breathed the moment of miraculous stillness, about to break against the unknown. Amid the shiver of the alien construct near the base of the closest peak, something moved. I flipped back to night vision, added a standoff chemical scan. We clung more closely. What are we doing here? I whispered. We're not qualified for this. I've wrecked the Chesapeake in carbon negotiations one time. He shrugged against me. I marveled at the familiarity of human anatomy that I could read her thoughts in that little shift of muscle. More than I've got, unless you count dickering over yarn and circuits. But we're here and no one else is. We better not fuck it up. Hmm. Against the spill of warmth, 87 degrees Fahrenheit, a spectrum of steam and oxygen and nitrogen and remnant volatiles, a warmer figure scrabbled. I held my breath, squinted irrationally, and upped the light gain in my vision. The creature, alien person, that had to be the right word, stepped lightly down the side of the palace and into the rock and scrub of our world. They were long where we were tall. A dozen narrow limbs supported a body scaled like a pangolin's. More limbs, flared or pointed at the ends, spread from the sides of their torso back toward a broad, flat tail. There wasn't enough light to tell color, but the shade of their scales varied, mottled dark and pale. Two large eye stalks bulged from the sides of what I decided to assume was a head. Smaller sensory organs dotted the head in complex patterns and diffused down their back. I swallowed. The realization that I was still recording, that my next sentence would be remembered for as long as humans kept records, froze my thoughts and my tongue. The alien tucked their tail under themselves and rolled back so that they lay rocking on the curve of their own body. Limbs scrabbled sweet pebbles from beneath, and they tapped their dark belly. Small antennae or cilia covered the glistening skin there revealed. I caught my breath, clinging to those cilia were two miniature versions of the alien. One bent its head back, twisting sideways to point an eye at me. It let out a whistling warble, which the other echoed at lower pitch. Dory twisted her own head around, lips parted in delight. Bah! That's for history, I told her. I knelt down to match the alien's new hide, and Carol joined me. Welcome to Earth. What's your name? The alien brought two pairs of limbs together, drawing one across the other like a bow. Pitched oddly, but clearly comprehensible, I heard, These are diamond and chlorophyll. I am Cytosine. What's your name? Kids first, apparently. This is Dory. I'm Judy Wallach-Stevens, and this is my wife, Carol. Music spilled from Cytosine's limbs. 
that same five-note series from the initial transmission. We understand each other. Yes, you've been listening to us, but of course they had. Watching our movies, picking up our broadcasts, well over a century's worth of stories and school videos and documentaries and news. What were they like to follow all that and still want to meet us? Yes, that's how we learn. You haven't heard our songs yet, but you are far advanced and we didn't dare wait. It's reassuring to know you're civilized like us. Wait, what? Beside me, Carol stiffened. Whatever cue had made them call us civilized, they didn't want to admit confusion. If they were anything like humans, the other side of that line could be unpleasant, maybe even fatal. <laughs> I heard a ride door slam and someone walking down the path. This discussion was about to get a lot less controllable. We're glad to have you here, I said at last. I hesitated, not wanting to claim unfounded authority. I'm present for the Chesapeake Bay Watershed Network. May I ask who you're present for? Simulated laughter drawn from Cytosine's bowstring limbs, somehow eerier than the words produced the same way. Yes, of course. I'm first mother of the solar flare, limbs pointed at the palace ship behind them. Here on behalf of all the families of the rings, we can help you escape this world. And I'll stop there. <sighs> Thank you so much for the reading. You're welcome. So I wanted to ask... I think it makes sense to ask here, how did you come up with the aliens in a half-built garden? And, and what were you hoping to evoke through their physiology and their physicality? My previous two books are a deconstruction of H.P. Lovecraft. And while they're technically fantasy, uh, they do have aliens in them. Uh, Lovecraft had many, many flaws. But one <laughs> of the things that he was very good at was creating non-humanoid aliens. And so when I was suddenly in the position of having to make up aliens for myself, I felt like I had a bar that they had to be at least uh, non-stock-like as mm. the ones that I had borrowed from Wealthcraft earlier. The Plains people, which Cytosine is, uh, the, the pangolin types, are... Originally sort of adapted from there's an M.C. Escher picture of these roly polies that curl up into balls and move around by rolling over their backs and tails. And they're not much like that anymore, but that was sort of the initial seed of I need a body plan. Here's one that I can play with. The three people who don't show up yet in that scene are uh, doing a different thing that I enjoy doing with aliens, and that was, in fact, kind of the plot of my first professional publication many years ago in Analog, which is that if aliens do look even vaguely like something on Earth, how do you handle it? if these aliens are reminding you of something that you are scared of on Earth, an insect, a snake, only they are sapient and therefore can be offended by that. And so they are very vaguely giant spider-like. And they will tell you all the ways that they're not like spiders, starting with the fact <laughs> that they have endoskeletons. Um, but I, I wanted to do something that was a little bit 
scary and monstrous and therefore uh, make uh, an interesting contrast to the ways that they are sympathetic. And I also wanted something that you could imagine as finding a way to be uh, symbiotic with the Plains people because they are originally coming from very different ecological niches, but ones that uh, border on each other. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm curious also about the the naming system that the that the ringers have. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah. So as I was thinking about the ways that those two species came together, they are from essentially the equivalent of Earth and Mars in their own solar system, both being populated at the same time, but one of them being a little more technologically advanced than the other, and thinking about what would happen when they first came together. And one of the things I decided was that since often we start our attempted extraterrestrial communications with basics of math and chemistry and working up from there, that they would have at some point in that process decided to have names that could be represented with molecular diagrams. And so they all have names of various uh, molecules and elements and those have, over time with them, come to have very complicated symbolic meetings. Um, so cytosine's name is an amino acid that is important both on Earth and in the rings and central to life. And there, for the ringers, that would have implications of being central and important and also because it's a molecule associated with life and reproduction, uh, fertility, which is very important to them. Yeah. So I think that raises another point that, that we get a hint of in that passage, um, but maybe not the, the full picture, which is that the ringers are a rigidly, they have a very rigidly matriarchal society. And I think that the rigidity is, is just as important as the matriarchal part there. Um, I'm, I'm curious what you, like what, le- what made you interested in exploring what that would look like, and especially in in sort of conversation and collision with all these other systems. Yeah, first I should say that matriarchal is probably not the quite hmm. correct word for it, because although it is, well, it's the right word, but it means a different thing there than here, because matriarchy, <laughs> okay. we often use it to mean rule by women, but literally it's rule by mothers. Yes. And in fact, for that particular species, Everyone has the same gender, and the role that you play in reproduction is shaped by these very complicated sets of dominance wrestling in which whoever wins the dominance wrestling ends up being the person to carry the children, and everyone else contributes genetic material to them. And then in the current Ringer Society, which is not the way they've always done things, because like us, they interpret their biology very differently in culture over time. In the current Ringer Society, the sires in one of these families stick around throughout the raising of the children and remain subservient to the mother for as long as she's a mother. You might not always be the mother at any given over the course of multiple children or multiple sets of people, uh, but in their current society, you're expected to remain in 
that particular gender role, we could call it, for as long as the kid's being raised. And therefore, they see being a current mother as an indication of dominance and leadership potential. And therefore, the, to come to an important negotiation with nursing children is a way of saying, I am a powerful leader and you need to listen to me. Which is, of course, sort of or very much an accident for Judy and her wife. Yes. <laughs> it is how she gets stuck, uh, despite being a chemistry expert in uh, heading up first contact, which she did not necessarily want to be doing. I, I, I want to talk uh, for a moment about something else that, that just briefly comes up in this passage, which is the dandelion networks, which are the communication system that the watersheds use to make important decisions. Where did the idea for them come from? Where was the sort of genesis? And how do you imagine them having evolved? So I love the Le Guin quote about how the capitalism that we have now seems inescapable, but so did the divine right of kings. Mm. And I've been mulling over for a long time. What is it that would look as different from what we have now, as what we have now looks different from the divine right of kings? And the next door question to that is, what would we need in terms of governance and economic structures to actually get out of the holes that we've dug for ourselves as a species? What is a structure that is well geared to solve the problems of climate change and inequity? What does that look like? And when I try to think of uh, different ways of governing that would actually potentially work, even with actual humans involved in the governance, I thought of citizen science and crowdsourcing projects that I've been involved with uh, when I came to D.C. and saw being run at the Environmental Protection Agency and around the city. And these are projects in which uh, computerized structures are used to help people gather or analyze data and often help make decisions about data from the environment around them. And it might be counting birds, it might be carrying around a portable air quality sensor, it might be reporting potholes, but it's a way of spreading out the ability to see and respond to problems in the world. And dandelion networks are descended from those technologies. Uh, They have some things that we don't have yet, although I have seen various people uh, work on them or work on early stages of them. So for example, they have algorithms that, where we right now tend to end up with computer learning algorithms that end up unintentionally with the biases from the data sets and the bad decisions we made previously, theirs build in biases towards ecological sustainability, towards equity between different groups of people that we would like. So essentially, they decide what their values are going to be as a society, and then they set up the network so they will help them to follow those values. (laughs) 
Um, in the same way that if you, I don't know, decided that you wanted to eat organic, then you would make sure you had plenty of organic food around and you knew where to go and shop for it. And that in general, the structures of your life were uh, built around making those things uh, relatively salient and easy to follow. Um, and then they also have uh, much improved personal sensors. And we see some of that with uh, Judy, who is particularly into these sensors and carries a lot of them around with her, but also makes use of the collective ones that have been placed into the river and into the environment around it and tracking right. lights and trees and so forth. I'm curious how you would describe the sort of system of governance set up by uh, by the watersheds, like is is there an analog in the present day? Is it is it something that feels totally new and different? We have analogs on small scales. Uh, so, uh, like I said, there's a lot of uh, crowdsourcing projects. There are many local governments that have set up apps or other structures where people can report. You know, if there's a problem, if they see that a tree needs attention, um, there are, I think it's New York, I may be wrong about that, where each of the trees planted by the city has a email address where you can send information about problems that tree is having and people do that but they also send in just like little notes to say how they appreciate the tree and what they use it for. So small scale, we have it, um, but large scale, I don't think it's something we've done yet. I think it's something that, you know, we could potentially do. I was trying to at least posit something that was possible. Join KSQD every Sunday night at 10 for the Evil Eye radio program with host Forrest Reed. It's a unique exploration of Yiddish folklore, Jewish mysticism, and Kabbalah. Folk tales, superstitions, and wisdom are interwoven with atmospheric music. That's Sunday nights at 10, here on KSquid 90.7 FM and online at ksqd.org. Many voices, one station. If you're just joining me, my guest today is author Ruthanna Emrys, whose latest novel, A Half-Built Garden, tells the story of humans and aliens meeting for the first time at the edge of ecological disaster. One thing we haven't talked about yet is the role that traditional nation states, like the ones that are primarily <laughs> in power today, how they operate in this world. Could you say a little bit about that? Sure. So I should say going into this, first of all, that I'm actually kind of a fan of the uh, democratic nation state bureaucracy. I, I live in D.C. I have worked with the executive branch. I have a lot of friends who work at deeply unpopular places like the IRS. And it's just the, the career executive agencies are full of idealists who are willing to do the hard grinding work mm. when the people who tell them what to do and give them money are talking about how terrible they are when they're being given half the money they actually need to do their jobs, when they're getting appointed heads who think their agency shouldn't even exist. And this is a future where, na where nation states 
keeping themselves from solving the problems that desperately need solving is something that has continued, where power continued to go to people who got their power on the basis of saying that government is terrible and therefore they're going to go into the government and make there be less of it. <laughs> and the dandelion networks, they're called dandelion networks because they see themselves as growing into those cracks rather mm-hmm. than deliberately replacing something. The places where the nation states are failing to do things, where the corporations are failing to do things, are the places where they go in and take over and solve the problems that no one else is. But the flip side of that is that the people who are in, still in these old governments that still exist and are just much less powerful than they used to be, are the people who have that same sort of stubborn idealism that I see in people working in the executive agencies now. And while I focus the book on, you know, the place where I live and where I work, uh, similar things are going on to varying degrees around the world. And we see uh, little bits of that and at least hints of the ways that nation states and networks have varying balances of power depending on where you are and what the nation was doing and what the networks were able to do. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, hearing you talk about that, I was at some point recently reading about the history of the general strike and um, the sort of failures in the United States to to make use of that tactic and, and sort of an analysis of why. And one of the things that stuck or that stuck out to me was um, the author of this essay was saying that uh, you can tell how serious somebody is about a general strike by how deeply they get into the logistics. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, I, I, I am a big fan of boring logistics and the work required to make them happen. And, you know, I try not to put too many boring logistics on the page, but I was also trying to put in structures that are willing and able to handle them and, you know, make the infrastructure go and do the boring, undramatic work of maintenance. Hmm. The watersheds, in addition to being sort of polities of a sort, are also their communities in a more traditional sense. I'm curious to hear your take on on what it like what makes a community thrive, what makes it interesting, what makes it successful. That is a big question, and I don't know if it's a question that has one answer. As I mentioned earlier, the the neighborhood uh, within the Chesapeake network where Judy lives is, in fact, my neighborhood. And it is a neighborhood that I love, that I think is doing a lot of work right now towards sustainability and resilience. And I tried to build in and build on a lot of the things that I have seen be successful here. Both the the willingness to do the work of the town meetings and the arguments in, in meetings or on threads, but also the making little places that work and do things. So there's a scene where she's going to a water feature that has been created to prevent runoff during flooding events. And that is a place where we have, in fact, a plan in place to eventually put in this water feature that 
you know, by 2083 might be seated with all of these little sensors, but also you go in and you check how well the frogs are doing before a major storm. And also just the diversity of the neighborhood, the fact that there are many different types of people willing to live together so that there is no type of person who doesn't fit in is, you know, it's a huge advantage if you're living in a large queer collective household to be in a place <laughs> where there is not a big social norm uh, around uh, family structures and ethnic background. And so they have more of that. One of the things that gets mentioned in passing is that within the watershed networks, when there are climate refugees, communities actually compete to welcome in refugees and all of the the new ideas and the expertise that they bring to the table and that there are celebrations and festivals that recognize all of those different layers of immigration that have come in over the course of a few generations. We, we don't have it exactly like that, but we do have you know, music festivals on porches. And uh, I think yesterday I didn't make it, but there was an international celebration to show off all of the different places that people are coming from and the foods they have. At the same time, you know, it's a, it's suburb. There is space between buildings. There's a lot of green space. There's a lot of transit going into and out of the city. And so just that richness and that interconnection are things that I at least really value in a community and try to show as worth growing and preserving into the future. So over the past few years, there's been what feels like a constant stream of devastating news about climate change and human environmental impact. And I think just last week there was a study at a Stockholm University stating that levels of toxic forever chemicals in the atmosphere make it unsafe to consume rainwater anywhere in the world. How do you maintain hope for the future, and particularly for our ability to reverse the damage we've done in the face of news like that? Sometimes I just get off Twitter. Um, <laughs> but I do, I do also see that even as we get these we're in we're at the point where no matter what we do things get worse before they get better and that doesn't mean that they won't get better it doesn't mean there aren't things that we can do now to make that better happen sooner and reduce the amount of the worse and i also see you know all the work that's happened over the last few years to improve batteries and therefore our ability to get and store electricity from more renewable sources, um, the work that we have in fact done, and we have actually made progress toward our various goals at reducing carbon. That's not uh, publicized as much, but it has actually happened. Uh, the degree to which I see the conversation now, even despite this presence still of desires over of de deniers, excuse me, being overall much more recognizing and taking seriously these problems. And the ways our stories are changing. We are telling more stories uh, about, you know, what can we do about this? What would a better future look like? And we are seeing 
more acknowledgement and more work towards solving the problems, even as the problems are getting more obvious and in part because the problems are getting more obvious. So, you know, it's, I grew up in the Cold War with the idea that apocalypse was an all or nothing thing. And I think we need to come to terms with the fact that we have an incremental apocalypse that we are in the middle of. And there never comes a point where it's too late to reduce harm and aim for something better. Even as there's no way to prevent the whole thing because we're already in the middle of it. So what's next for you on the writing front? I'm honestly dithering between the beginning of a couple of projects right now. I've got a space opera with Mm -hmm. sapient starships and uh, aliens that are parasitic readers and trying to figure out what to do with that. I've got some ideas that are a little bit closer to a half-built garden uh, around structures to connect people with their ecosystems. And uh, I've been wanting to write something in the Everglades for ages, which is a ecosystem that I'm deeply fond of and mm. that may be one of the lost causes, but again, there's you know, still some stuff we can do. So yeah, I'm thinking about doing something with that and with the that exact question that you were just raising is, what, what do we do when it's already started? Well, whatever it is, I look forward to reading it. Ruthanna Emrys, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me on. <sighs> Pleasure. You can learn more about Ruthanna from her website, ruthannaemrys.com, or on Twitter, at r underscore emrys. Catch Story Behind the Story the first Friday of every month from 5 to 6 p.m. on KSQD 90.7 FM. To share your thoughts on this or other shows, drop me a line at clara at ksqd.org. The Story Behind the Story is produced for KSQD 90.7 FM by me, Clara Shirley Appel. Our sound engineer is Lanier Sammons. He also wrote our theme. 